While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. 1828 is the most widely accepted year for the start of the Georgia Gold Rush. Before that, of course, it was known from the time of DeSoto that there was gold in the region, and there are stories of mines operating throughout this area as far back as Cherokee legends go. But by 1830, there were some 10,000 people digging, panning, and walking the streams looking for gold. There are millions of stories that come out of the gold miners' camps, and not all have happy endings. Not that long ago, I realized that I had heard about the cotton gin all my life, but had no idea how it worked, and I kind of thought the same way about gold mining. People in this area may even have the opportunity to visit a gold mine, but not everybody lives in this area. So I thought to do a quick How It Works on gold mining. This is a Moving Through Georgia Extra, How Gold Mining Works. The gold rush began when someone pulled a nugget out of a stream. And that is what they call a surface or a placer mine. Gravel from a stream bed would be swirled around in a pan so that the heavy gold would fall to the bottom. As the water, dirt, rocks, and residue were washed out, the gold would remain. This still works today. A friend and I were hiking a trail in White County just the other day and passed a fellow who had camped with his family. The kids were playing in the stream and he was swishing around the stream bottom with his gold pan. For better effect, you could shovel the gravel from the stream bed into a sluice box. That's a long wooden channel with wooden riffles at the bottom. You put the box in the stream so water will run through it. Collect a bucket of riverbed and put it in the box a shovelful at a time. The water and dirt will run through the box, hopefully causing the gold to fall to the bottom where it will be stopped by the riffles. There's an art to this, that's setting the water flow just right, knowing how much material to add at a time, and knowing when to clear out the sluice. After a while, you'll pull the entire thing out of the water and search for obvious gold nuggets in the riffles. Any other material left behind that's stuck in the riffles gets put in a bucket. You'll pan that material to find any gold that you missed. You may also run that material through a gum rocker. That's basically a hollowed out log that was rocked back and forth to allow the gold to be captured in riffles at the bottom. The sluice box and gum rocker could be combined in an endless array of combinations to increase your chance to find gold. In a fairly established operation, the riverbed material would travel through a sluice box, then into a basket which screened out larger rocks and debris, and then into the gum rocker. Sometimes the wooden bars nailed to the bottom of the sluices were coated with mercury, which would capture the gold particles as everything else washed away. Back in the day, you could buy one of those devices from a fellow named T.W.A. Sumter, who had an office in Clarksville. He sold a patented combination of sluice box and rocker. I've said this before. In a gold rush, the only person guaranteed to get rich is the guy selling the shovels, or in this case, the guy selling the sluice boxes. 
Even so, those devices could be counted on to gather about half the gold that might be in each shovelful. Lots of gold washed right through the riffles and back into the stream. If you couldn't just walk out to the middle of a stream and start panning, you could also float a flatboat and scoop up shovelfuls of dirt to bring to the sluice. The episode on Gold in Loudsville also describes a diving bell that was floated out to the center of the river so prospectors could search the riverbed, and you can actually see one of those diving bells in a park in Dahlonega. John C. Calhoun even seriously investigated diverting the Chastity River temporarily to allow prospectors to search for gold in the uncovered riverbed. Eventually, the issue turned from how to get the gold out of the stream into how did the gold get into the streams in the first place. Those flecks of gold had come from quartz veins in the local hills. As water slowly wore the quartz away, it released its gold into the river and down into the valleys. A miner could follow a stream upriver, panning as he went, until he eventually found the quartz veins supplying the gold. A few of these mines started as open pits, but it was much more efficient to dig tunnels to the quartz veins. Most tunnels ran about 30 feet underground. Digging below the water table was a constant problem. The Loud Mine in White County apparently traveled down upwards of 135 feet. Either way, the gold-bearing ore had to be brought out of the mine, either in a wheelbarrow or in a mine car that ran on tracks. The ore was then crushed in a stamp mill. This might be one hammer brought up and down by a person, or a dozen hammers run by a water wheel. For a small operation, you put a metal plate at the end of a log, and a few handles to hold it. You suspend that log from a tree that's young enough to be flexible, but still has some bounce in it and can lift the log, and you pound the ore on an anvil to break it up. If you can raise a strong pole horizontally, you can tie a rope to one end of the log that has the metal plate at the bottom, throw it over the pole, and attach a bucket to the other end. Add water to the bucket and it'll start to drop, lifting the log. When the log is high enough, let the water out and have it fall on the ore on the anvil. The crushed door was screened out, and the smaller particles traveled through a sluice box lined with riffles coated with mercury. After a while, you take the material caught in the riffles and boil it at a very, very high temperature to vaporize the mercury and leave the gold. Even with the new innovations, this process was still inefficient and the ore would be put through the sluice two or three times, and even then they might only recover half the gold that was in the ore. But people were getting rich here and there by digging out gold. Placer mines were becoming the lower end operation and quartz vein mining was the profitable way to go. The days when groups of two or three prospectors would walk into the woods and walk out rich were more or less over. The money was being made by those who already had the capital for equipment and salaries. Anyone could still come to Georgia and mine for gold, but most likely they would end up working for a corporation in a mine. Gold fever in Georgia was dying out. And in 1849, word spread that there were fortunes to be made in California. 
those that stayed behind or those that returned from the California gold fields used some technical advances from out west to work their quartz veins. A canal would be dug to bring water from the mountainside to the mine, and then it was funneled into a high-pressure hose. This would wash away the dirt and expose the quartz. Sometimes the ore would be loosened with dynamite. If you visited the gold mine in Dahlonega, you can still see the drills that drilled holes for the dynamite. The Civil War brought an end to most gold mining. A few operations continued hydraulic mining for a while, but they would come and go, and it wasn't really a very profitable operation. That would change at the turn of the century. In 1899, the Dahlonega Consolidated Gold Mining Company built a stamp mill with 120 stamps to process gold ore. Dredges were on the Chesapeake River again, bringing up gold-bearing ore, but again, it was hard to turn a profit. Dahlonega Consolidated shut down in 1903, and the second gold rush came to an end. There was another short rush of mining in the 30s prompted by the Great Depression, but that also faded out fairly quickly. So, here's a good question. Where did all that gold come from? Well, according to the Museum of Natural History, it came from outer space. More specifically, from inside of stars. When the Earth was formed, a lot of our heavier elements were part of the Earth's core. And then due to volcanic activity and asteroid impacts, that material from the core was brought up to the Earth's crust. Carl Sagan used to say that all the time, that all heavy elements on Earth came from stars at some point. And as early as 1924, physicists were able to turn other elements into gold. Mercury usually, but even sometimes lead. In the 1970s in the Soviet Union, some lead shielding from a nuclear reactor was so bombarded with neutrons that parts of it actually turned into gold. And there is lots of gold still out there, so next time you're camping, bring your pan. It can be very relaxing just to swish some uh, riverbed around and uh, maybe, who knows, maybe you'll get rich. Step right up and swing them, boys, swing them mighty high. That's the way we do it down in Georgia. Everybody swing your honey, swing her high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an aid that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all.